One of the great ways to tell stories is by the juxtaposition of two characters. And the Bible is, is full of, of a juxtaposition, of a, a, a positioning of two characters against each other. You've got throughout the scriptures, uh, Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau. Um, and this morning we have uh, one, of the, one of the great one of the great juxtapositions, one of the great uh, tragedies even of the Gospels, and that is John the Baptist and Herod the Tetrarch. In this text, there are more than one tragedies to look at. We obviously have the, the death of the great prophet, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist, we have the tragedy of the mother-daughter relationship between Herodias and, and her daughter Salome. And then you have this tragedy that exists within, within the man Herod Antipas. Beginning in Matthew chapter 13, we see more and more throughout the Gospel of Matthew a rejection of Jesus' public ministry. And not only by the Pharisees, but even the crowds who were following after him. And in Matthew chapter 14, it continues in that vein. And in this passage, verses 1 to 12, we have the account of the death of John the Baptist. J.C. Ryle says that in this passage, we have a page out of God's book of martyrs. The history of the death of John the Baptist is recorded. In the wake of the disappointments of the crowds with Jesus, he wasn't the kind of Messiah that they were looking for. And in the wake of his rejection in Nazareth by his own townspeople, which is the previous passage, we come to chapter 14. At the end of the passage, when we get to verse 13, which we'll look at next week, and we'll briefly touch on today, we see that Jesus withdraws from the public domain of Herod, and he begins to concentrate his teaching ministry on discipling his disciples. Why? Why does Jesus withdraw and change the locus of his ministry? Well, Matthew's going to tell you in these first, four, excuse me, these first 12 verses. He opens in the first few verses, and he tells you that Herod thought that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Now, you and I would understand what Matthew was talking about if he didn't tell us what he did in verses 3 through 12. But in Matthew's writing, he's headed to verse 13, because in verse 13, he's going to tell you what he, Jesus did in response to Herod's words about him. And so this passage sets the tone for what Jesus is going to do in his teaching ministry from this point on. So we're really just going to look at two headings, and then we'll apply it to ourselves and, and talk about how it applies to us. We'll look at it under point one is John. And point two is Herod. Point one is John. Point two is Herod. So I'm going to read to us Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 to 12. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist, he's been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. And because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. 
And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. So that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was very sorry. But because of his oath and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And the disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. This is God's word. Let us pray together. Father, we're grateful for your word. And Father, we come to this text where there are these two figures, one, this wicked man, and one, this man who was a great godly prophet of yours. Father, we ask that through this text we might behold Jesus Christ. We pray for your help and we pray that the Holy Spirit would come. In Jesus' name, amen. So point one, John. As I said a moment ago, this might be the pinnacle story of tragedies in the gospel. And there's a lot here that would have been known to an original Jewish, Jewish audience that is, that's probably missed by us. And remember that Matthew is he's writing primarily to a Jewish audience here. And the, the first thing to note is that this is happening, this, this tragic event is happening at a birthday party, verse 6. It's happening at a, at a birthday party. And this would have been significant, and a Jewish audience would have recognized this because Jews didn't celebrate birthdays. They didn't celebrate birthdays. And if there was ever a text to prove why they didn't celebrate birthdays, this would probably be the one. So here, setting the scene, is this extravagant party, this extravagant party to celebrate this man, Herod. Now remember, just to set the context here, Herod Antipas is one of the sons of Herod the Great. And Herod the Great is the one that was, 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 was pursuing after Jesus, after Jesus was born and his family had to exile down to Egypt. And Herod divided up the kingdom to his sons. He's called Herod the Tetrarch, and Tetrarch just means four. It means four. So he divides up the kingdom, and Herod Antipas, who's in this text here, is the governor over one area, and his brother Philip, who's mentioned in the text as well, is a governor over another region and so on. Thank you. And this, this woman here, Herodias, that's mentioned, she's actually the niece of Philip and the niece of Antipas. So this woman, Herodias, was married to both of her uncles at one point or another. Further, Antipas leaves his first wife for Herodias, and his first wife was the daughter of a king. So when Antipas leaves his first wife for Herodias, the king starts a war with Antipas. This guy's got some serious drama in his life. So let me just confuse you one more time 
about the entanglements here in these relationships. Philip and Herodias have a daughter named Salome. That's the one that dances here. And that's the one who asks and is, and is granted her request. Later, Salome will marry a different Philip, who's her mom's, and she'll become her mom's aunt. So Salome, at different points in her life, in a relationship to her mother, is her mother's daughter, her mother's sister-in-law, and her mother's aunt. Now, and this is the very reason that John so publicly denounces the marriage. The law of God so clearly says, particularly Leviticus, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. And further, the Herods are what we could call colonial rulers. They're, they're, they're given their provisional authority by the Roman emperor, by Caesar. And they really have one job. They have one main job. Keep the peace. Just keep the peace. Just don't upset the, the, the cultural understanding and standards of the day. And that is not what Herod does. By marrying and having relationships with all these different kinds of people, he's not keeping the peace. He's, he's disrupting the, the, the cultural mores and values of these, of these Jewish people. So they're at this birthday party. And Salome is dancing for her stepdad. And let me just say that this, this wasn't the waltz. This is the height of immorality and incest. This is a perverse and wicked scene. This is an awful and shameful sexual act. And for Herod Antipas to allow this or to request this and to enjoy this is pure evil. I just want to address this while we have the opportunity here in the text. If someone has sexually assaulted you, it is never your fault. Sexual misconduct is never warranted. It's never deserved. It's never earned. And it is always wrong. Salome has been abused here by Herod Antipas and made to be a sexual exploit. And it's wrong. So I want you to hear it from me and know that if this has ever been done to you, it was wrong and that it is deeply grievous to God. But I want you to know a second thing as well is that if you are a Christian, you are loved by God to a degree that you will spend all of eternity coming to grips with. And Jesus Christ has made you his by his life, death, and resurrection. We talk about his life, we talk about his death, but we must remember that there is, there was a real resurrection. And that means that if you are in Christ, your life is now marked by resurrections. Paul tells us, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And if you are in Jesus Christ, then you are a blood-bought son or daughter of the king. And he is making you new, and he will spend all of eternity making you new and showing you the depth and the reality of his love for you. So this party scene goes from wicked to more wicked when Antipas grants the wish of Salome. Verses 6 through 9 say, But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. And prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was very sorry because of his oaths and his guests, and he commanded it to be given. So the dinner's been served, the drinks have been served, there'd been dancing, and now one final platter would be brought out. The icing on the cake, the final platter, the dessert, is the head of the great prophet. You can see here the bravery of John to speak the way he did to Herod as the great prophet. It would have been in John's best interest to just keep his mouth shut. And yet through the course of time, he has the courage to speak the truth to Herod. Let me say that no prophet of God ever speaks the truth out of hatred for a person. It's out of love for Herod and desire to see him converted, out of a desire to see him repent of his sin and restored in fellowship with God that John bravely denounces the sin in which he was engaged. It would have been a lot easier for John to just skirt over the issue. issue. It would have been a lot easier to never get involved in the matter. It would have been a lot easier... To keep himself quiet. But John bravely pronounces the word of God against Herod because John fears God and God alone. So, how do we apply this to ourselves? Well, first is the need to speak, is the need to speak. The gospel is communicated in actual words. You know, it's been said to preach the gospel at all times and use words when necessary. You're not communicating the gospel unless you are using words. The gospel is the proclamation of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That everyone is under the righteous condemnation of God because they have all turned from God and gone their own way. And the penalty for sin is pronounced upon the world. But God in his mercy has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to perfectly obey all the precepts of the law. To walk a life of complete and absolute obedience to God. And at the end of his life, he was crucified, he was murdered, he was dead, buried in the ground. And on the cross, he suffered the penalty for the wages of sin. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus Christ against sin. And all who repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are no longer under the condemnation of God. 
No longer are looking forward to the wrath of God for the penalty of sin, but instead are under the grace and love of God. That message needs to be spoken and communicated. That's how God quickens souls by the power of the Holy Spirit. God uses words from my mouth and your mouth in talking to other people about what Jesus Christ has done for them. And God, through the Holy Spirit, uses those words to make dead souls live. The second way we're going to apply this is that this church is going to impact every single apartment complex owner that's moving into this neighborhood. People are moving to this city at such a rapid rate and they think that they're moving to this city because they want to find this land of, of, <laughs> of progressive values and, and, and they, they, they think they have this vision for why they're moving here. But God is going to use this church to communicate the gospel to them and people are going to get saved. People are going to come to know Jesus Christ because of the ministry of this church. Because of you speaking the gospel to people. Because of you befriending people in this neighborhood or in your own neighborhood. Every single neighbor around this building is going to be impacted by the gospel. And so tonight, we have our monthly time of worship and prayer. And when we gather tonight, we are specifically going to pray that God would use us to bring about revival and conversion in this city. So if you're available... You can squeeze that kind of thing into your schedule. We'll be here at 6.30 to worship and sing to God and to ask God to move by the power of his Holy Spirit. Point two, Herod. Again, J.C. Ryle. I was obviously reading J.C. Ryle this week. says, God's witnesses may be put out of the way, but their testimony often lives and works long after they are dead. God's prophets don't live forever, but their words often survive them. And that's exactly what's happened here in Herod's context. And yet his conscience, though bothered, was not tender before to the word of God. Herod, when he hears of Jesus' ministry, reacts with the same kind of terror, the same kind of anxiety that he had when he reacted to John's ministry. You see how gripped by fear Herod is? Verse 5, it says that he fears the people. Verse 9 tells us that he fears his dinner party. He made this oath. He's so afraid of, of, of upsetting somebody at a, at a cocktail party that he actually has somebody murdered. In Mark's account, which is in Mark chapter 6, it says that he fears John even. This is a man that's gripped by fear. This is a man that fears everyone. But what's striking about Herod, and we learn something from him, actually comes from a place in the account of Mark's gospel. I'll read it to us. Mark chapter 6, if you're turning there, about verse 20, I think. 
Yeah. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. What's going on here? Once John was actually imprisoned, once he was under the, the um, under Antipas had, had arrested him, it says that Herod would actually still hear John on a daily basis even. Herod actually liked to hear what John had to say. And all John was saying, most likely, was confronting him. He liked the sense. There was something that perplexed him. There was something that even made him glad when he heard John preach. There's a remarkable word that's used here in the Greek. And it's aporeia. And poreia means to make progress. Okay? It means to, to move and, and, to, and to make progress and to, be, and to be heading a direction. But aporeia is the opposite. It means to waver. It means to not make progress. It means to be at a, at a crossroads of sorts. And that's where Herod is at. Herod is at this crossroads of sorts. He's pulled. He's divided. He, he, he wants to go. He wants to, he's glad when he hears John, but he just can't do it. He's perplexed by John. And this is the notion of doubt. This is doubt. There's a sense of not knowing which way to go. It's what James calls in his epistle being double-minded, to having two minds about something, about, about, about having information and not knowing for sure what to do with it, to see both ways maybe looking good and not knowing which way to go. And it can be disorienting. One way to think about it is like a treadmill. You, you ever, <laughs> ever turned on a treadmill before you were on it, and it's, you know, it's, it's going, and th- that moment when you first step on it's disorienting. It's maybe going a little faster than maybe maybe you thought you were a little bigger than your britches. Maybe you set that thing at about a seven point five or something, and you're like, not exactly. Five point five will do. Tyler's nodding. He knows. <laughs> but that moment when you first step on the treadmill is that disorienting moment. It's perplexing, and you have to make a decision quickly. You either have to make a decision to get those feet moving, or you got to make a decision to get off. It's a spiritual vertigo of sorts. And that's where Herod was. He was at a, a, a loss of balance and, and not knowing which way to take. So let's just look at this for a moment, then we'll apply it, and then we'll finish. This notion of doubt, this notion of being perplexed, this notion of operea. It happens outside and inside the Christian faith. It happens outside and inside the Christian faith. On the outside... One of the best places and my favorite places is, is the man in Mark 9. And the man in Mark 9 has a son with convulsions. And he goes to Jesus and says, will you heal my son? And Jesus says, if you believe. And what does the man say in response? He says, I believe, help my unbelief. It's this sense of being Perplexed. It's a sense of, I want to, I want to believe, I want to cling, I don't, I don't know, I, I, I think I have something in me that believes. But then it's inside the faith, too. It's inside the faith, too. You know that place in Psalm 73. Psalm 73 says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, 
my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And the psalmist goes on and he tells us because he sees the prosperity of the wicked. And there's a sense of not knowing why a good God would allow the suffering in the world, not knowing why a good God would allow suffering to happen to you personally. And we've seen this. Everyone goes through this. Everyone at some point in your life goes through this sense of why does a good God allow suffering in this world? Why does God allow the evil that's happening to me? Some of you are there right now. Some of you are there right now. That sense of doubt. Let me tell you three things about doubt. One is that it is a window of opportunity. Doubt is a window of opportunity. The whole point here is that Herod had a chance to completely change his life. Herod had a chance to completely change his life. This was a, you know, this is a, this is a, this is a, a despot kind of ruler. He's power hungry. He's probably a lonely kind of man switching different sexual relationships and he had a chance to actually change his life. He had a chance to actually respond to the preaching of John the Baptist and turn things around. It was an opportunity for him. It was an opportunity, this sense of being perplexed and being in doubt. But even within religious circles, doubt is almost always seen as a negative thing. It's almost always seen as a completely negative thing. I think the reason is because what we could call religion versus Christianity. Religion versus true faith and Christianity. In religion, faith and doubt have this distinct kind of role because God has to hear my prayer because I believe so strongly. That's religion. Religion is that God is somehow in my debt. I lived my life a certain way. I believed and grit my teeth as hard as I could. Now, God, you owe me. And when things don't go the way that you expect them to, when things don't go the way you expect them to, you either completely tube the faith or become a deeply bitter person and deeply bitter at God. You think you merit God's blessing because of your performance. But, but, listen to what Jude says. Jude tells us to have mercy on those who doubt. Be merciful to those that doubt. It doesn't say rebuke those that doubt and tell them to grit it up and do better. It says have mercy on those that are in a doubtful situation. Or how about at Mark 9, when the guy comes up to Jesus, who's, who's trying, he's trying to muster up anything that he has, even if it's just a mustard seed, does Jesus say, turn around, buddy, go back to your prayer closet, and when you can come back and say, yes, Jesus, I completely believe, then I'll do it. No. Jesus is merciful and gracious and loving and long-suffering with this man who doubts. 
Because doubts are a window of opportunity. Second thing, doubts. Doubts are good because they will drive you to look at the foundations of your life. When you get to those Psalm 73 places, they drive you to look at the foundations of your life. They drive you to look at your worldview. Look at, look at Herod. Herod says he feared John. Now, we could take that to mean he was afraid of him, but I also think we could take it to be that he was in awe of him. He looks at this man that has this great courage. He's the only man that has the guts to actually challenge him. Because everybody else, Herod knows, according to the way he understands the world, is just out there for themselves. They're just out there for themselves. They're out there to build their kingdom. They're out there to make a name for themselves. But when you look at John, you see something radically different than that. Totally upside down from the world system as this man Herod Antipas has seen and known his entire life. What good does it do John to speak that way to Herod? It should drive us to look at the foundations of your life. John is not trying to be. He's different than what Herod knows. John is not trying to build a kingdom for himself. John says repeatedly that that's not what he's there to do. He says, I must decrease. That's John's mantra. Jesus must get bigger. He must get more glorious. We must take, our eyes must be more turned off me and look at him. He says he's not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. He says it's just not about me. There must have been this sense of awe when you looked at John and was with, with, with Herod. Like, who is this man? What is the foundation of his life? And the same is true in Christian circles. Doubts cause us to look at the foundations of our life. Look, we've seen it, and we've seen it in this church. We've seen people that came to very difficult situations, and we've seen people that haven't recovered, and we've seen people fall away. And we've also seen people become more resilient in their faith, a tenderness, a softness, as if they've seen and touched Jesus themselves. We have to ask ourselves, when we come to doubts and we consider the foundation of our life, if God could allow his most committed servant, Jesus Christ, to suffer, for reasons that were not understood in the moment, and yet through that bring about redemptive and good purposes, then could it be that for you and me, who are far less committed servants, far less devout, could he bring about a suffering in our life that is bringing about a redemptive purpose that we don't see right now? And the answer is yes. Sometimes we see it in this life, and sometimes we don't. But they are creating for us your afflictions, your suffering, your pain are creating for you a glory that is beyond all comparison. But the third thing we must know about doubt, about this window of opportunity about doubt driving us to our foundations, is that the window of opportunity for doubt closes. 
it closes. Isn't that one of the points of the, John, of the, of the Herod Antipas story? He hears the message from John. God is gracious enough to bring him someone to tell him to turn from his sin and turn in faith and trust to Jesus. He even has him where he can hear him on a one-to-one kind of relationship. He's glad to hear it. But the window closes. No more being perplexed. No more glad to hear him. Just kill him. And the window closes for you too this morning. If you're not a Christian, and maybe you came here this morning, and you thought, well, maybe, maybe there is something to this, this God thing, this, this Jesus thing. And, and if, if, there's a, if, there's a, if there's a movement in your heart right now to turn in faith and trust to Jesus, do it. Because the window of opportunity does close. It is not a window that stays open forever. And my Christian friends, there is a window of opportunity in your life too. There is something that God is moving in your heart right now to do it. So do it. Hebrews says, therefore, As the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The window of opportunity closes. Whatever it is, whatever it is in your life, don't let the window pass. If that means putting your faith and trust in Jesus, don't let this moment pass. If it means that you've been harboring some kind of bitterness or hardness and you've heard it preached and you've heard others counsel you, you've heard others talk to you, don't harden your heart this morning. Because the window does pass. Every day we're making, every moment we're making little decisions that are creating us to be our future selves. So let me just close where Matthew closes here. And let's close and look where our eyes should look. As Justin said it so well, we don't want to end the sermon by saying, don't be like Herod, be like John. There's no hope in that. Verse 12 says, and his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place to be by himself. Now, why did he do that? Why does Jesus hear this and, 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 and withdraw himself from the crowds to go be alone to a desolate place? Well, surely on the one hand, he was grieved. He was grieved for the loss of this man. He was grieved for the tragic thing that had happened to him. But it also, he knew that it pointed to his own impending death. Because if this is what happens to his servant, if this is what happens to the great forerunner, if this is what happens to the great prophet, then it surely was coming for Jesus himself. The night before Jesus was crucified, 
he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says in Luke's gospel that being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus Christ was not just facing death. Prophets of old, martyrs of old, have faced death and done so pretty triumphantly. But here you have the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, and he's so in such agony that he's sweating drops of blood. Not because he feared simply being crucified, but because he feared the wrath of God being poured out on him. There was a cup that he had to drink. The anger and fury and wrath of God against all sin was coming to this divine son. And it's been said that in the greatest act of all of history, Jesus Christ did not waver. He could have called legions of angels to come to his rescue and to be triumphant, but he allowed himself to be steadfast, to be stalwart for your sake and mine. Because look, we all waver. We all waver. I waver, you waver, I doubt. I'm not like John. I'm perplexed. I'm confused. I often don't know which way to go. I often try to please both sides, try to please people. But Jesus Christ remained faithful to the bitter end for your sake and mine. So that now our faith doesn't rest on ourselves but it rests in him. Whether it's a mustard seed or whether it's a fully ripe and mature oak tree. So trust him this morning. Find your hope in the one who never wavered for your sake. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful for Jesus Christ. We ask, God, that you would move in this place through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would apply the preaching of your word to our hearts and minds. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.